Welcome to the American Academy of Dermatology's Dialogues in Dermatology podcast series. This podcast is certified for CME credit. For credit information, visit Dialogues in Dermatology at aad.org slash OLC. The information in this CME activity is for continuing education purposes only. It is not intended to establish a standard of care and is not meant to substitute for independent medical judgment of a health provider relative to the diagnostic, management, and treatment options of a specific patient's medical condition. At the conclusion of this learning activity, listeners should be able to review the best practices in diagnosing, evaluating, and treating cutaneous mastocytosis. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Mast cell diseases are characterized by clonal mast cell infiltration into the skin, bone marrow, and other organs. Childhood mastocytosis accounts for the majority of the cases and is usually self-limiting and resolves by puberty. In contrast, adults are much more likely to have chronic disease with systemic involvement. Over 80% of patients with mast cell disease have skin involvement. Activating kit mutations are the most common genetic abnormality. In this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology, Drs. Leslie Lawley and Harrison Wen discuss the evaluation and management of cutaneous mast cell diseases in both childhood and adult onset mastocytosis. Hello, welcome to an episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I'm a dermatology resident from the Emory University School of Medicine. I'm joined today by Dr. Leslie Lawley to discuss mast cell diseases. Dr. Lawley is an associate professor of dermatology and pediatrics at my institution, Emory University School of Medicine, where she serves as the chief of pediatric dermatology and the pediatric dermatology fellowship director. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Lawley. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I thought we could get started by, if you could just give us an overview of how mast cell diseases are classified. Certainly. Mast cell diseases are classified by the World Health Organization into three main categories. There's cutaneous mastocytosis, systemic mastocytosis, and mast cell sarcoma. Within two of those categories, there's additional subdivisions. With cutaneous mastocytosis, we have maculopapular mastocytosis, which was formerly known as urticaria pigmentosa, mastocytomas, and diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis. Within systemic mastocytosis, there are additional subdivisions, and these include indolent systemic mastocytosis, which is the most common, smoldering systemic mastocytosis, aggressive systemic mastocytosis, systemic mastocytosis with an associated hematopoietic neoplasm, and then the mast cell leukemias. Excellent. It says you, you review the three categories, three main categories of systemic uh, mastocytosis, cutaneous mastocytosis, and mast cell sarcoma. And so diving a little bit deeper into the cutaneous manifestations, you talked about the three manifestations of maculopapular, localized, and diffuse. How do these present clinically? So maculopapular form is most common, and I mostly see pediatric patients, and this is a very common presentation for children. They tend to have any number from four or more up to even hundreds of skin lesions, which can be yellowish brown or red brown in color. 
They may be macules or papules, hence the name. And these can occasionally spontaneously urticate, meaning they would have some erythema and edema or perhaps even a blister. And this can happen with the release of the chemokines in the mast cells. For mastocytoma, typically these are only seen in children. It's rare to see in adults. It tends to be one papule or nodule that may be about a centimeter or larger and have a rough kind of leathery surface. Often these will develop blisters over and over again. They also have that tan red color to them. You can have one to three mastocytomas and still have that distinction. For diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, this is all over the body and the skin has a proto-orange edematous consistency to it. And often there is a lot of blistering. The coloration can be kind of a tan yellow or even more of a reddish brown as well. Okay, excellent. And so it sounds like we're hearing common themes with a tannish red color. They happen to spontaneous urticate. So they all show this, this so-called derriere sign. Is that correct, Dr. Lowley? Correct. Correct. And maybe the term spontaneous is not the best for me to use because something causes them to release those mast cell mediators. In clinic, you might try to rub one of the lesions and cause it to have the erythema and edema and hence give you the diagnosis. However, you do have to be careful about that. If a patient has a lot of activity of their mast cells, you could produce overall flushing and maybe hypotension. For patients that present with obvious signs of a derriere, meaning several of their lesions already have an erythematous or edematous appearance, or maybe a parent has really good pictures to show it, you may not actually need to do that test in clinic. Got it, got it. And you know, that alluding to the flushing hypotension is a great segue into my next question. How often do patients with cutaneous mastocytosis have systemic symptoms? And what systemic symptoms are most typical? So for patients with mastocytosis, in studies looking at pediatric patients, up to a third may have some systemic symptoms at any given time. For the symptoms, it appears that the most common are either flushing, which can occur up to 25% of the time, or GI symptoms. And that can be diarrhea, abdominal pain, or even vomiting. And that can occur in up to 20% of patients. Less commonly, bone pain occurs. Of patients that have bone pain, that is a more common symptom for adults and rarely seen in children. Sounds good. So we talked about flushing, GI, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and then less commonly bony pain. And that happens to about 20 to 33% of the time. Um, excellent. So, so let's say a new patient enters your clinic and you suspect a cutaneous mastocytosis. Can you walk us through what your evaluation or workup looks like? Certainly. So for my clinic, typically the new patient is going to be a pediatric patient, often a young patient before age two. And that evaluation initially just involves a good full physical exam. We want to get a sense of how many lesions does the patient actually have? Is there any hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy, which are important features to look for? In addition, if there's not a good history of a derriere sign, or as I mentioned earlier, some lesions that appear to already have that symptom happening, then I might rub one of the lesions as well as some normal skin for control to get the derriere sign. 
if I am not able to get a dairy sign, but I'm highly suspicious, those are patients that I may actually do a skin biopsy on to confirm the diagnosis. For pediatric patients, you do not need to do a biopsy. For adult patients, it may be helpful to do a biopsy because of the diagnostic criteria that is well-recognized by the World Health Organization, then having that biopsy is helpful for the diagnosis. Beyond that, then I also order some labs. Um, I like to check a complete blood count with differential as well as a hepatic panel and then a serum tryptase. Excellent. So just to review, so, you know, it starts with the physical exam. You're really checking for hepatosplenomegaly. Sometimes rub one of the lesions to see if that dairy sign is present. In kids, the biopsy doesn't play as big a role as it does in adults. Then checking the labs with a CBC with diff, hepatic panel, and tryptase. And when should a dermatologist refer a patient for bone marrow biopsy? That's a great point to bring up. All adult patients should go to hematology. It is recognize that they need an evaluation for systemic mastocytosis. However, the major, major majority of pediatric patients do not need to have a bone marrow biopsy and evaluation. For pediatric patients, the only ones that need that type of evaluation are those that are having severe recurrent symptoms. If they do have abnormalities in their complete blood count or a tryptase over 100, if they have organomegaly or lymphadenopathy, or if they're having persistence of their cutaneous mastocytosis after puberty, then you may want to consider a bone marrow biopsy. In addition, when you're following them over time, if they have some clinical changes that are concerning for systemic involvement, or if they have a high level of symptoms and you have moved through a lot of treatments and are considering cytoreductive therapy, hematology should get involved at that point. Of all of those potential kind of markers that would suggest a need for a pediatric patient to have a bone marrow biopsy, organomegaly has been shown to be the most consistent feature to look for. Excellent. Thank you for outlining some of those criteria in terms of when you should refer to, to hematology. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about tryptase. You mentioned in the context of your workup, as well as a potential situation for referring to hematology. Can you dive a little deeper for us in how you use tryptase in your clinical management? Certainly. For pediatric patients, I get a baseline tryptase to help provide a sense of how active their mast cells are in their body. For most patients, it is going to be a normal level. And for pediatric patients, there are studies to show that even within the normal level, there may be cutoffs that can allow some prognostic information. If their tryptase is under 6.5, then they are unlikely to have a lot of symptoms or ever really need any systemic medications. If that level is below 11, between 6 and 11, essentially, they have a higher chance of having more symptoms and needing some medications routinely, perhaps could have a pretty strong reaction to something. If it's over 11, then we're more concerned that they have a high risk of having to be hospitalized, perhaps in the ICU, maybe anaphylaxis type reaction. And that can be helpful to just know what to prepare for. Those are the patients you definitely want to have an epinephrine pen available to them and to keep antihistamines like diphenhydramine that are quick actors on hand. For adult patients, a tryptase over 20 is an indicator for that additional systemic workup that they need to have anyway. 
beyond that, if you're following a patient over time, especially a pediatric patient, if they develop some new symptoms and you don't know if that's related to their mast cell disease or something else, checking a trip taste later on may be helpful to distinguish if that new symptom is related. Excellent. So it sounds like trip taste is important to get a baseline and you use it to guide early management as well as to track disease progression. Would you say that's a pretty correct? Accurate. Okay. And so talking about management, can you walk us through your approach to treating mastocytosis? Yes. So for the patients, the treatment is really based on their symptoms. There are a lot of patients, as I mentioned earlier, with systemic symptoms, about 30 percent, about a third actually have them. So two thirds of patients aren't having any symptoms and thus they don't really need any treatment. I like to monitor them over time and make sure they're doing well and having an expected course for patients who are having itch, which is the most common skin symptom, or maybe they're having some GI upset. The first line therapy is a non-sedating antihistamine. And you give that every day, all the time. And those doses can be increased up to four times normal as we would do for an urticaria patient. If that's not enough to control the symptoms, my second treatment to add on is a, an H2 blocking antihistamine and see if that's enough to control them. Third is a chromon sulfate. <laughs> and so you just stepwise layer on these treatments until you get control of your symptoms. For kids who have a lot of trouble with skin itch, if those medicines aren't helping or parents prefer something topical, you can compound chromalin sulfate and have that as a topical option. And I prefer that over topical steroids because there's lower risk of causing side effects. Do you ever escalate management based on the trip taste value alone? No, I base my management on, on their symptoms. symptoms. Yes. And then with the EpiPen, you mentioned earlier that really you look at that trip taste value and is, is that the main kind of factor in terms of guiding management for, with the EpiPen? Yeah, the epinephrine pen is a difficult decision. Routinely in the past, every patient with mastocytosis was given an epinephrine pen to have on hand in case they had a reaction. And we're looking at anaphylaxis, right? That's what we're concerned about. Children are low risk for anaphylaxis. There's less than 5% in multiple studies that are reported to have anaphylaxis, but adults are much higher risk up to 20 to 30% in some studies experience anaphylaxis. Therefore, all adult patients should probably have an epinephrine pen. The issue is the epinephrine pen cost has gone right. up over 500% in the last 10 years. Yeah. So then that gets us thinking who really needs it and who doesn't need it. So there's no really perfect answer, but sometimes I do for pediatric patients use that trip taste level to help in our decision-making with the parents, whether or not they need that prescription to have on hand. Got it. And so we talked about first line really being that non-sedating antihistamine and then layering on H2 if needed. And then on top of that, chromin sulfate. What about, is there a role for omelizumab or Zolaire in management of uh, mastocytosis? Yeah. So patients that are not controlled with the antihistamines, then those are the next steps. And you move on to omelizumab to see if that would be helpful to control. And that's pretty well recognized, I think, as a good next step. Beyond that, there are newer medications, the kinase inhibitors that would be used 
and they do have FDA approval to treat mast cell disorders. Excellent. And are, are there any emerging therapies or, and to that point, are there any perhaps major gaps in perhaps a care of these patients that listeners should be aware of and should be attuned to? I think the kinase inhibitors are the newest treatments to use, and they have made a big difference, especially for adult patients who are the ones more likely to need those medications in controlling their symptoms and helping with their mast cell disease. There are two main ones. There's metastarin, which is FDA approved to treat aggressive systemic mastocytosis. And this is for the adult patients who have that typical D816B mutation in their CKIT gene, which is found in most adult patients with mast cell disease. It's seen in about a third of pediatric patients. It can also be used if they just have a wild type kit gene. There's a second kinase inhibitor, imatinib, that is also FDA approved for the treatment of systemic mastocytosis. But this is for patients who actually do not have the D816B mutation, but for patients who have a mutation outside of exon 17. Excellent. And so it sounds like when we're starting to reach for that, we need to get other kind of collaborators involved, perhaps hematology or genetics to really identify the, the genotype of their disease. Absolutely. I think these medications are really driven by hematology. And okay. part of the workup and evaluation of adult patients is often looking for that mutation to see, do they have that typical mutation, the D816B or one of the less than 10% that have some other mutation. So that's usually determined during their evaluation. But pediatric patients can have varied mutations. They don't have the same. And unfortunately, those mutations are not helpful for prognosis and timing of when their mast cell disease might resolve. So we do not typically get that type of testing for pediatric patients. Got it. Now, you know, I did want to ask you, NSAIDs and some vaccinations have been described as a trigger for mast cell degranulation. How do you counsel your patients about these potential triggers? That's an excellent question. We have a standard handout that we give patients with medications as well as foods that may be potential either mast cell triggers or releasers or may have high histamine if they're certain foods. But it can really be patient dependent on whether or not they actually react to those things. So it's generally recommended that patients need to be cautious. However, if they've never had a reaction to an NSAID, it's probably fine for them to take it. In terms of vaccinations, there are several studies to show that adverse reaction to vaccinations in mast cell patients is not really higher than the general population. That being said, most providers would suggest that you monitor a patient a little longer after their vaccination to make sure they don't have a reaction, maybe even up to one to two hours after their vaccination. If a patient has a reaction to a vaccination, it actually doesn't mean they can't have that vaccination again if it's part of the series, because most patients do not actually react to the same one later down the road when they have their next set of shots. Got it. Got it. Well, this has been so informative, Dr. Lawley. Is there anything else you'd like to tell Dialogues listeners about mast cell diseases? I think that one thing just to be aware of is there is a really nice patient-run organization for support. And for any of our diseases, it's wonderful when we have that outside support to go to and refer in your patients. It's a good idea. What's that uh, support group? I'm sorry, the Mass, <laughs> the Mass Cell Society. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mass Health Society. Yeah. Excellent. One other piece is a pediatric dermatologist. And I think it's really important to make sure parents know that adult disease is very different from pediatric disease so that you can alleviate any unneeded concern by the parents. Got it. Got it. Well, on behalf of Dialogues in Dermatology, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Dr. Lolly. I've learned so much about mast cell disease from you, certainly on this talk, as well as in clinic with you. And I look forward to following your work in improving care for patients with mast cell diseases. Thanks again, Dr. Lolly, And we hope to have you again in the future with more updates for our listeners. Thank you, Harris. The World Health Organization classifies mast cell diseases into cutaneous mastocytosis, systemic mastocytosis, and mast cell sarcomas. Within cutaneous mastocytosis, there are three main subtypes, mastocytomas, maculopapular cutaneous mastocytosis, and diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis. Solitary mastocytomas present as one to three brown to yellow plaques or nodules with a leathery surface. Maculopapular cutaneous mastocytosis, formerly known as urticaria pigmentosa, is the most common subtype and consists of numerous up to hundreds of yellow to brown or red-brown oval macules and papules on the trunk and extremities. The lesions may be monomorphic or polymorphic with a mixture of larger plaques or nodules with smaller macules and papules. Diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis presents as generalized thickening of the skin with a leathery or potage texture. Paritis, urticaria, and erythema of the skin due to release of mast cell mediators is seen in both children and adults. Blistering can also occur in all forms in children but is much more common in severe or diffuse disease. Stroking of a lesion will lead to wheel formation which is known as derrier sign. According to Dr. Lawley, only up to a third of pediatric patients with mastocytosis have systemic symptoms. The most common systemic symptoms are flushing and gastrointestinal symptoms such as nausea, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Other systemic symptoms include dyspnea, syncope, palpitations, dizziness, headaches, bone pain, and more seriously, hypotension and anaphylaxis. Weight loss, fatigue, night sweats, fevers, bone pain, and cognitive changes are suggestive of systemic disease. Workup for a patient with suspected mastocytosis includes a thorough history and physical exam to gauge how much skin is involved, as well as evaluate for any hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy. Skin biopsy, while not always required, can aid in confirming the diagnosis, especially in adult patients. Lab monitoring includes complete blood count with differential, hepatic panel, and baseline serum tryptase, which correlates with mast cell burden. Patients with low baseline serum tryptase are unlikely to have symptoms or require medications. In contrast, severe symptoms to trigger such as anaphylaxis are seen in patients with higher tryptase levels. Dr. Lawley emphasizes that the vast majority of pediatric patients do not require further workup for systemic mastocytosis. Only pediatric patients with severe recurrent symptoms, complete blood count abnormalities, tryptase over 100, organomegaly or lymphadenopathy, or persistent cutaneous disease after puberty warrant further testing and a possible bone marrow biopsy, with organomegaly being the most consistent feature. 
This differs from adult patients who should always be referred to hematology to evaluate for systemic mastocytosis given the high rate of bone marrow involvement. Management of mastocytosis is based on controlling symptoms. Patients and their caregivers should be counseled to avoid triggers of mast cell degranulation that include certain medications such as intravenous contrast, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, polymyxin B, and anticholinergics. Other triggers include friction of the skin, extreme temperatures, insect venom, fevers, stress, and vaccines. Dr. Lawley explains that most patients tolerate vaccines well, but may require monitoring for symptoms one to two hours after vaccination. For patients with cutaneous symptoms, first-line therapies are non-sedating, second-generation H1 antihistamines. H2 blocking antihistamines can be added for patients who are experiencing gastrointestinal symptoms. Chromalin sulfate, both oral and topical, acts as a mast cell stabilizer and can be prescribed as a third-line agent. Dr. Lawley remarks that while less than 5% of children experience anaphylaxis, 20-30% to of adults report anaphylaxis. Therefore, all adults should have epinephrine autoinjector versus only pediatric patients with exceedingly high tryptase levels or a history of severe symptoms. For patients who are not controlled with any histamines and topical agents, omalizumab has shown to improve cutaneous and systemic symptoms, including anaphylaxis, and is generally well tolerated. Emerging therapies for advanced systemic mastocytosis include kinase inhibitors. Midostarin is a multiple kinase inhibitor that is useful for adults with a D816VCKIT gene mutation. According to Dr. Lawley, this mutation affects the majority of adult patients and a third of pediatric patients. 60% of patients with advanced systemic mast cell disease with associated organ involvement responded to midostarin in an open-label study, with 45% of patients classified as having a major response. Imitinib can also be used for patients with systemic mastocytosis with other wild-type kit mutations outside of exon 17. Finally, Dr. Lawley notes that patients can find support groups and additional information from the Mast Cell Society. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.